Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. First brand that you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Um, Huffy. Um, Um, I wanted a Huffy dirt bike more than anything in the world. And I remember um, having an argument with my mom and dad who didn't want me to get a dirt bike because they were afraid I was going to fall off and break my arm. And I remember going to the bike store with my mom and dad for it must have been like my ninth or my 10th birthday. And, you know, my mom kind of pulls me over to the 10 speed bike area and my dad kind of gives me a wink and kind of gives me one of these. And he looks over and he's like, is that the one you want? I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right, I got you. And uh, it showed up for my 10th birthday. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Doug Zarkin, the VP and Chief Marketing Officer for Pearl Vision, the $600 million global optical franchise enterprise. Dr. Stanley Pearl opened his first store in 1961 in Savannah, Georgia, and in 2004, Luxottica, the giant Italian eyewear conglomerate, acquired Pearl Vision. Doug has been the CMO of Pearl Vision for 10 years, about three times the average tenure of a CMO. And in this interview, you will understand why. Doug has returned Pearl Vision to Stanley Pearl's original inspiration for his brand, and in so doing, inspired his organization and accelerated the brand's growth. It's such a good story that Harvard Business School has written a case on it. My guest, Doug, is a seasoned marketer. He began his career in the advertising industry, working at Lintas, Saatchi & Saatchi, and Gray Advertising. He then moved over to the client side, He's worked for Avon, Victoria's Secret Pink, Warnico, which is famous for the Calvin Klein brand, and the Kelwood Company, which markets an apparel brand eyewear, Vince. This is my conversation with a CMO who values the hustle and values trust. Here's Doug Zarkin. Doug, welcome to the CMO podcast. You know, I have noticed on some Zooms I have seen you on, some videos, that the background in your home office is chock full of sports memorabilia. So I want you to tell us about that hobby and what is your most cherished item in that seemingly large collection? Yeah. So that's the area of my house that my wife allows me to keep uh, all of my past stuff. And a lot of it is from work that I've done in the course of my career. 
was fortunate to work with most of the major leagues, uh, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. For me, I think probably the most prized possession um, ha- has got to be my, my Lawrence Taylor autograph uh, helmet. An intimidating guy, but could not have been more generous um, with his time. You know, looked me in the eye, talked to me like a human being, was really interested in kind of in my backstory and just, you know, a real humble guy for somebody who truly changed the game. The good news is that I, I'm also the father to a 13-year-old sports fanatic son. So I get to pass on all of these things, as he likes to call it, my legends collection. I love that. I have an old time tennis rack and an old wood one that Roger Federer signed for me. Wow. So that's hanging right to my left right now. So that's probably my favorite. Yeah. Um, they're all great. They all have great memories. You know, nothing that I purchased. They're always, they're things that I have come into yeah. contact with. And so everyone is a story. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, early in your career, you worked for Gray Advertising and my employer, P&G, was your biggest client back then and probably yep. still is. But I'd love you to talk about any classic gray P&G story that comes to mind as you began your career. Yeah, you know, I was really fortunate that when I was in, in the agency world, and in particular at Gray, I, I was part of an internal team at the time that was called Gray 18 and Under, which was the precursor to eventually starting a division within Gray, a separate partner company called GWiz Youth and Entertainment. Mm-hmm. One of the early projects that we worked on for Proctor was CoverGirl as they were getting into the celebrity game. And I remember vividly two projects involving Faith Hill and Brandy um, when they were marketing for the first time collections and um, had the pleasure of sitting there and, and being in the room. And I was probably the guy in the corner of the conference room in the suspender shirt and tie because back then there, there was no yep. such thing as business casual. And I remember, you know, back then it was all about Q score and celebrity relationships for Proctor and for CoverGirl in particular was very new. And so they had a list of about a hundred different celebrities um, in and outside of the music world. And it was just interesting, the subjectivity that went into selecting who were the folks that they were going to go out with. And, and I remember Brandy was a really bold move for the company at the time. I think she was one of the first women of color mm-hmm. that, the, that the brand had really stood behind. Um, and it was a bold move in terms of the way in which they were looking to take advantage of this up and coming segment of the market, which they called youth marketing, which today is probably the largest contributor of sales for them. Great lesson learned in, in how brands are built and how decisions are made for sure. CoverGirl's done a great job over the years diversifying, you know, their ambassadors, their representatives. I, I worked in CoverGirl way back in the day. Was, I, I was one of the early PNG people who went after the acquisition. And Nikki Taylor was just signed at the time. And she's back. I mean, she's, yeah. and, which is wonderful. What do they say in our world? What's old is new again? Yeah, absolutely. So you worked on a lot of brands in your career. I would say maybe dozens, maybe even hundreds. And... I'd like you to talk about, not including Pearl, because we'll talk a lot about Pearl, I'd like you to talk about the most challenging brand that you have worked for, either when you were in the agency or after you moved to the client side, and why? For me, I think about my time at, at, at Limited and Victoria's Secret Pink, um, which I like to classify. And I know marketers and leaders in general don't like to talk about failures, but I look at my time at Pink as a successful failure. We were able to accomplish a number of things, but I learned 
a lot about what I didn't want to be and culturally what I didn't want to be a part of. At the time, the environment was was not necessarily conducive to innovation. Um, when you have a founder leader who wants to make every decision, but yet is hiring you and recruited you because of the insights that you bring, they're diametrically opposed forces. And so with Pink, the challenge that I was brought in was to how to evolve it from a product line into a business. You know, it was in test market and, and the challenge was how to roll it out nationally. And we brought some pretty provocative thinking to the table, but we encountered a, a founder who really wasn't interested in, in listening, who at the time didn't believe that certain young women of certain sizes shouldn't wear the product. And in reality, what we were trying to explain was that you needed to embrace diversity, not just of race, but of size. You know, at the time, the average size of the American young woman was a size 10. And we were trying to push for innovation, not only in sizing, but in product assortment. But I think for me, what it taught me was the importance of listening in order to lead. I couldn't go with the leadership style that got me recruited by Victoria's Secret. Um, I couldn't lead from the front. I had to kind of lead from behind, which was a change of pace. You know, would I make the same mistakes? Yes, I would, because I learned a tremendous amount. But it absolutely was not the right cultural fit for me because it really wasn't about making a difference. It really wasn't about bringing great thinking into execution. It was really about trying to get into the mindset of a founder owner and figure out what they wanted and how to bring their vision to life. How'd you navigate that, Doug? Um, not well, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, I, I took my lumps. Um, I, I think eventually I got some great counsel from colleagues in the organization, one of which I ended up working for when I came to Luxottica, who gave me some guidance about how to read the room. You know, what were the areas where flexibility could exist to pick your battle and pick your moment mm -hmm. when you're brought in to innovate and you think you have a, a palette to move from, to paint from with all the colors in the rainbow, you get really excited. And what I had to come to realize pretty quickly was that there weren't as many colors available on the palette, but I could still make a beautiful piece of art by using the few colors that were available. And I'm, I'm proud of the work that I did, but you know, it, it was not what I had hoped it would be in terms of not only a career stepping stone, but also a career experience. Not to start this off with a downer, but... No, no, no. It's a, these, are, these are important to talk about. Yeah. Which brand or which brand assignment did you learn the most from? Was it this one or another one? No, I would say Avon. Um, when mm -hmm. I went over to Avon products to sort of reinvent the direct selling model, to bring in a more upscale and younger, not only consumer, but also sales representative, it was unbelievable. You know, as, as a young man going to work for the company for women, um, culturally, you better learn how to listen and you better learn the importance of the frontline associate. And, you know, you're talking to one of the few men that can tell you that he was an Avon lady. Um, I spent the first six weeks of my career in the field, learning how to direct sell, learning how to sell lip gloss. And as my 15 year old daughter probably doesn't want to admit, I'm, I'm not terrible at it even to this day. But I learned so much from that experience because it was a world that I hadn't played in. It wasn't just marketing beauty. It was marketing an experience, a culture. And it really you know, challenged me as a, as a leader to think holistically about the importance of brand, but most importantly, understand the importance of positioning. 
because we were truly looking to reinvent an outdated model and bring in a consumer that never would have considered buying a product from Avon. What a great idea, though, to get out and spend time with the associates early in your assignment, listen to them, watch them, learn from them. Uh, And and I, I think that's true in any category when you're starting up. Get out there for the people who are closest to the customers, be with them, spend time with them, ask them a lot of questions, be curious. You'll be a way better leader and your priorities will get very clear. The most important tool that a marketer has in his toolbox are, is, is he or, or hers frontline associates. They are the embodiment, the three-dimensional embodiment of your brand positioning, of your brand values. You know, a brand is nothing more than a set of emotions, beliefs, feelings, and perceptions that are shared by an organization. And who better to embody that in the case of Avon than the Avon lady? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true today in my role at Pearl, it, it's about our, our, our license owner, our franchisees, our opticians, our optometrists, our corporate associates, being able to listen, to find insights and bring those insights to bear. Yeah. You said it well, they are the brand, right? Yep. Now, which boss on this rich career path did you learn the most from? Wow. Um, it, it's an easy one because she's somebody who changed my life for the better. Um, her name is Barbara Martino. Um, Barb was my boss during my time at Gray. Um, we started GWiz together. Barb recognized my passion early and gave me enough rope to climb and not choke myself out completely, but to feel a little bit of pain to use that analogy. Um, she recognized in me something that I didn't recognize in me, which was the fact that I could lead with passion as a leadership style that if I could get you excited, then I could probably motivate you to take the action that I wanted you to take when I wanted you to take it. And it was reflective in the business that we acquired, the work that we did. And I think it's become a bit of a, of a, a a hallmark of my career is just being able to, to not be outworked, not try not to be outthought, but definitely bring that energy and enthusiasm, not only as the CMO, but really the chief brand evangelist. We released an episode recently on this podcast about John Smale, who was one of the best CEOs in the history of Procter & Gamble, and maybe one of the best CEOs ever. And it really was all about leadership and what did they learn from him and what has he passed down over the generations. And one of the big themes that came out of that podcast, and by the way, I'd recommend it to you and everyone, it's it's amazing. And... John's special gift was seeing talent that was undeveloped and kind of raw and pulling it forward and staying behind that talent and believing in them. So I think what you just talked about with Barbara is a beautiful aspect of a great leader, something, you know, we all try to do. And I think it's not easy. It's not, you know, to to stand behind somebody and in front of somebody when they're young in their career making mistakes mm-hmm. and, and still yep. encouraging them to make those mistakes. And, and I look, I've, I've made many. Um, I, I think for me, it, it's about not making the same mistake multiple times. You know, learning experiences happen every day. They happen today, but it's what you gain from them. But we also learn as much from the leaders that aren't great. Mm-hmm. You learn what you don't want to be. I worked for somebody who I will not name, who was a complete narcissist who everything was about her, took credit for everything. When the opportunity was, was there to share the stage, didn't share it. And it's terrible. It's demotivating. And so one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is 
volunteer for mentoring programs. I'm heavily involved in the ANA, heavily involved with the Adweek Executive Mentor Program. Mm-hmm. But I also love to teach. I also, you know, I just taught at my daughter's high school. Um, and being able to, to try to impart some degree of wisdom and learning into somebody that they can unleash their own potential. Um, I think it's an obligation that we have as leaders. And it frankly is, is unbelievably gratifying. Well, John Smale felt that way too. So you would have enjoyed working with him. But different yeah, generation, like but, a, but a, a wonderful lesson. And this is off to a great start, Doug. I want to now switch to your CMO role at Pearl Vision. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You've been in that mm-hmm. role 10 years. That's yeah. a long time of one brand. And you know from the ANA, that's about triple the average yeah. tenure of a CMO these days. And it's the longest you've ever been at one company from what I've seen on your career path. So why have you decided to stay with this brand, this company, this team for such a large chunk of your professional life? Um, first of all, I'm, I'm very fortunate um, that the company has recognized something in me, but most importantly, that the, the franchisees, we are uh, 80% of our locations are franchised. We are, are the, the premier optical franchise brand um, in North America. What has kept me here really are a few things. First, the opportunity to make a difference. Um, look, it, it takes a village and, and marketing without execution is nothing more than, than words on paper. And I'm so grateful for our operations partners. But I am really blessed to be able to look at the fingerprints that I've been able to place on this business and know that I've helped evolve it. Um, I have a group of owners and operators that look to me for leadership, not just in helping to build their business, but these are families that own these businesses. Most of our locations are, are, are owned by a single family or a single individual. And I'm helping to pay their mortgage and put their kids through college and it's very gratifying to know and to hear the appreciation that comes. Um, I've stayed because I feel like I've also been able to assemble a team of marketing superheroes that I've never had the opportunity to assemble. Um, I've been able to curate the, the, the casting of this business to bring in diversity of thought, diversity of people, diversity of experience, to harness the power of people and put them on the course, you know, to use a sports analogy, when you're the CMO, you're really the head coach or the quarterback. You can't throw and catch the ball. You can't block. You've got to be able to put people in place that do all these things, but you've got to put the play in. 
And I'm really lucky that I'm able to call the plays and have a group of folks that help me execute them in a way that moves the needle. As you have brought people into your team, what's your elevator speech to them about why they should join? For me, it sounds very formulaic, but the philosophy that, that I have when it comes to talent is simple. I hire for passion, I require purpose, and I celebrate progress. I want people who will want to make a difference. I don't care what your title is. A good idea can come from anyone. And one of the things that I've been able to do here at Pearl is really flatten out the organization to allow even the most junior people the opportunity to affect change. I want folks that want to make a difference, but also want to be held accountable for those differences, um, that look at the decisions they make with real intent. And then recognizing that it's not about perfection, but it is about progress. It's about, are we better today than we were yesterday? And I think when you can create within an organization as large as Essilor Luxottica, a culture that celebrates progress, somebody who couldn't present that had a great meaning, real-time feedback is contagious to feeling good about what you do. And look, we're all living in the great resignation culture. My team members can find jobs outside of this brand that probably pay more, maybe easier, maybe more challenging, maybe more rewarding. But emotionally, I feel like the team is so invested that it's the desire to want to help each other out as much as help the brand out that keeps them. Now, I was doing my research for this interview. I came across a video you posted on YouTube called Thinking Small to Win Big. And I think it was yeah. posted maybe six years ago. And it told the story of the Pearl Vision restage. And it was really compelling. Thank you. Really, really interesting. And I found it lesson rich. So I would like you to go back six years, however long it was, about six years ago, I think, and talk about the restage. Why? Yeah. How? And most interestingly, how has it stood the test of time? Yeah. So when I joined the business, the brand had experienced five different brand positionings in eight years. And if you think about a typical two by two matrix, we were stuck in the friend zone. So go back, Jim, to when you and I were single and you would go out, get fixed up with somebody and, and they're like, how was it? Oh, they were nice. That was us. We were nice. Yeah. We, we meant everything to everybody, which meant we didn't mean something to someone. And so this brand had to get out of the friend zone. And so the journey started with, with stepping backwards to look forwards, going back to the vision of our founder, Dr. Stanley Pearl, who believed in that best-in-class doctor with that unmatched commitment to care from the exam room to the retail floor, bringing together the finest assortment of frames and lenses to really earn the trust, to be that neighborhood destination that people trusted with their eye care and their eyewear. Those weren't his words. That was my interpretation of what his vision was. I also spent a lot of time talking to our franchisees about what was broken. And they just didn't feel that the brand at the time had a clear path forward. One of the interesting things that we did um, is, is we talked to the X's. You know, if you ever want to talk, find out about yourself at your best and your worst day, mm -hmm. talk to an, uh, uh, somebody who broke up with you. And I learned from franchisees that had parted ways with us and patients that had gone somewhere else, what we didn't deliver, but most importantly, what they expected. And that helped fuel the notion that trust is really earned through a series of small moments. And if you think small, and if you focus on the journey in a series of small moments, you can actually win big, aggregate-wise, earning trust. And so it's the ability to care about the person behind the eyes that really fueled the trajectory of this business moving forward. 
it required us to update the visual language of this business. We don't operate stores. We have eye care centers. We don't have customers. We have patients. Why? Because a customer wants service, a patient wants care. And getting the, the love language of the business written and communicated allows everybody to start rally around the North Star, which is the brand position. Being able to identify who was our prime prospect, who was that person walking down the street that we absolutely had to win with. And then most importantly, getting out of our own way, not allowing ourselves to try to garner favor through big brand promotions, but to think about trust as a longer term entity, building lifetime value. And so we got away from big things like buy one, get one free to really focus on elevating within the brand value equation, the numerator. The numerator in a brand value equation is experience. The denominator is price. Every person, whether you make 50,000 or 5 million, wants positive brand value. So value equals experience over price. If we upgraded our experience, we could charge a premium price slash not discount as much and still leave a consumer with a positive or a patient with a positive brand value equation. And so laying that out for the community started to get some head nods. But you've worked in franchising, you've encountered enough mm -hmm. franchisees in your life to know that not everybody's going to take the journey with you immediately. I would say 30% believed it from day one. 30% said, no way, this isn't going to work. But it was the remaining, it was the middle. If I'm doing my math right, that's about 40% mm -hmm. left. Those were the ones that I had to earn the trust with. And that trust came through seeing progress, starting to see our reviews and ratings improve, start to see consumers come into us for quality of care, not discount and deal. And honestly, believe that we as a brand were in it to win. And the combination of those things and some good fortune allowed us over the last seven years to move to best in class status, to be a 4.9 out of 5 on Google when it comes to OD ratings, to be five years running the Women's Choice Award for Best Optical Retail Brand. But most importantly, to earn the trust of our franchisees, our licensed owners who embody this brand every single day. Now, you rattled through that, and it's a very impressive story, but what, you know, I know what these things are like. It's up and down. Yeah. This is a big cultural change, right? Yes. Very big cultural change with your own team and your owner operator franchisees. You said that you said about this 30, 30, 40%. Tell us a bit more about the cultural change, how you led that, how you outlined yeah. the new behaviors, and and what did you do with the ones that would not get on board? It's a it's a great, great question. So Along the way, there were a couple of moves that I think I made that turned, turned out to pan out, but at the time maybe weren't the wisest decision. And I'll give you one. February 2013, Atlanta, Georgia, in front of 750 people, I laid out a couple of different things. The brand positioning, the updated visual language, the evolution of our stores into eye care center, so a new design, an updated web platform. And at the end of the presentation, I said, listen, I want you to know that myself and the team here is really here for you. We want to hear from you. And I gave out my personal cell number. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
And for the first couple of years, I would get those phone calls on Sunday morning when I was coaching my son's soccer team. And I would get the angry letters. And I would read on the blogs, this guy has no idea what he's doing. And you got to take that and be able to process that those are emotional responses. You cannot have a rational conversation with an emotional person. So I had to allow myself the opportunity to listen to all of the emotional feedback. And then let's get back down to what the rational issues were. Your business is down. Okay. You're, you're not selling as much, you know, you, you've taken discounting out, but you can't now sell multiples. Take all of the, the, the energy, the negative energy, and you strip that out of the business. And it's like, all right, you need help. Let's talk about what we're going to do. And once they started to recognize that it wasn't about sitting behind the desk in, in, in corporate, but it was about being out in the market and look, you know, I'm grateful for my Marriott status and I'm grateful for all those chicken lunches that and dinners that I had. But I went out and I, and I made myself visible to the community and let them know that I was here. And I think most importantly, was very transparent when something worked and incredibly transparent when something didn't. They started to believe that I was a partner and they started to believe in the vision. We also assembled a rock star leadership team operations, product, finance, you name it, to build the infrastructure that didn't exist to bring these strategies to life. And it's about progress. And we wanted to celebrate progress. But at the same time, I start every national meeting and every regional meeting that I go to with guys, marketing, what is it? It's about progress on perfection. There are things we are not doing as well as we could. And I want you to know we're committed to that. That takes the temperature in the room down this is somebody who is committed to us, who recognizes that there's room to grow. But like, let's listen to what he's saying. And I think once they kind of understood that I was a teammate, not an adversary, mm -hmm. they started to see the progress. We introduced online patient scheduling. At the time, it was less than 3% of all patients scheduled. Today, it's one out of every three patients schedules an exam on ProVision.com. You know, we, we told them that they couldn't own and operate their own websites. Why? Because it was destroying our search abilities. It was destroying the values of the brand. A brand is only as good as its weakest link. I don't want to take my website down. You have to. Okay. Sometimes a license, a franchisor has to say, you got to do it. But we had to provide them a solution for, we're going to take this down, but we're going to build this and we're going to help you manage it. And it was just those, the culmination, there wasn't a shining moment. Yeah. That, that, that turned the tide. It was really over time. And it, it's been successful, as you say, and you've stayed with it. If you had to take away two or three power lessons from these last seven years in this restage that has worked for anyone listening in any category that's seeking to reposition, what would the two or three big lessons be? Yeah, it's a, Jim, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think they, those two kind of ladder up to a common theme, which is something that's really important to me as a leader and as a marketer is the notion of thinking human. The first lesson is that data doesn't make decisions for marketers. Marketers make decisions using data. And the reason is, is because data is only as good as the questions that you ask. How do you know what questions to ask? You got to get out of the boardroom. You got to get into your four-walled environment. You got to ask provocative question, talk to the X's as an example, but don't make decisions based on what a spreadsheet tells you. The second aspect of it 
is marketing is about positioning, which is about the art of sacrifice. Fear of missing out is not a marketing strategy. And brands, especially ones that are in a state of where they need to reposition themselves, have a very uncomfortable time saying, we're not going to focus on this. You cannot possibly win. Even if you have Procter money or Pepsi money, you can't possibly win trying to be everything to everybody. So figure out what is essential, you know, the must and the needs, then understand what the coulds and the shoulds, Mm -hmm. and then get into the mights. And so if you as a leader can say, we're going to own this, we're going to win at this, it's liberating because it takes the challenge and it makes it small. Small makes it easier to process and that allows you to have big ideas and implement big projects to get big results. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. There's one that I, I thought you might talk about. You did such a beautiful job going back to the founding story and you sought the insights from that founding story. And the reason that brand started, the reason that brand was differentiated, and you kind of pulled that forward, modernized it, but stayed true to the founder. And I thought that's, I think that's a beautiful lesson. So many could benefit from that. So many great CMOs go back to the origin of the brand and understand it. So could you speak a bit to that? Because I've, you yeah. know, I've, 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 I saw it in your video. I read it in other, in other interviews you've done. There's nothing to be embarrassed about taking two steps backwards in order to take three steps forward. Mm-hmm. Um, founders, a Dr. Stanley Pearl, there's a reason why they're visionaries is because they saw something that other people didn't. Ralph Lauren was, is and was a visionary. The challenge you have is not being nervous about optimizing the vision but embracing the understanding of the vision. The language that we use at Pearl, nobody cares for eyes more than Pearl, that, that iconic expression of our brand positioning has been in place for 25 years. But the manifestation and how we bring it to life is completely different than it was in the 70s. If you were to strip out the differences, the essence, the DNA is the same. And so I think for brands that have a founder, or had a founder, if you go back to the archives and listen to what they said, I had the the opportunity to read Dr. Stanley Pearl's autobiography and I talked to his children, I talked to franchisees that he hired. And so I was able to get a firsthand account of how he would talk about the business. And I would write down notes and words and things. And if you today can capture that essence and bring it to life in a contemporary way that resonates with today's culture, you have a winning formula because a lot of brands don't have strong DNA. It's really hard to birth a brand. Yeah. So to your point, embrace it because it'll give you a head start. It's not going to hold you back. Are there any companies or brands that were inspiring to you on this journey? A few. Um, Big, big fan of, of what Walgreens did um, in terms of creating that neighborhood connection. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a small, it's not so small now, but there's a, a small brand in the supermarket space called Wegmans. Just their commitment to customer service, you know, the way they embrace you, the way they welcome you, you know, that, that opportunity to treat you as a human being, kind of going back to the earlier narrative, 
those were two of, of the brands that really inspired me as I was thinking about Pearl Vision and how to bring this brand DNA to life at a national level, but to think local. You know, we want to be that neighborhood destination people trust with their eye care and eyewear needs. Neighborhood, not just in proximity, but neighborhood in the way in which we treat you. We don't want you to be a just a, a simple name in the appointment book. We want you to be somebody whose story we know. And that allows you to form a much greater trust bond and loyalty bond as these new players come into market with splashy deals that may attract you in the short term. At the end of the day, you know you can trust your neighborhood provision because it's, it was founded by an expert and it's staffed by experts and it's going to deliver you an unmatched commitment to care. You have built a very differentiated brand in a very cluttered competitive category, and you've done this without the Pepsi and Procter budgets. Thank you. You even compete with one of your sister brands within Essilor Luxottica, right? So, and I, I know that feeling because I did that within P&G. But what are your lessons for others in building a differentiated brand? You've done it. You've done it in a very challenging category. A lot of what you've been speaking about is differentiation, of course. But if you could kind of distill that into a nugget or two to others who are struggling to build a brand that is not nice, but is means something to someone. Yeah. So I, I, this is a Dougism, but the complexity is in the simplicity. You know, moving a brand forward, changing the trajectory of a brand is a very complex challenge, but the solution often lies in the simplicity. So keep it simple whenever possible. The second thing is to ensure clarity of understanding of your brand positioning, because your brand positioning just doesn't fool your advertising and marketing. You know, my dad still thinks all I do for a living is make commercials. Um, yeah. yeah. Brand positioning in, is the North Star that inspires every part of your business, from your operations manual to the product that you bring in, to the way in which you treat your patients, to the sacrifices and innovation that you bring in. And I would say most of all, a relentless pursuit of consistency. We tend to have ADHD as marketers when we do the same thing over and over again realize that the consumer isn't spending as much time with our brand, product, or service as we are. So in our case, in optical, they care about us if we're lucky, if we're lucky and really good at what we do every 12 months. The other 11 months, they're on to other things. What I need to do is to ensure that my brand stays relevant and in touch. But if I'm changing out my, my windows of my eye care center every three weeks, I'm really just changing for the sake of change because they're not paying attention to my product and service until a certain epiphany moment hits. So I think having the humility to understand that the consumer isn't thinking about you the way that you're thinking about yourself in terms of the time commitment is liberating because it doesn't force you into the mindset of what well, we did this last year. Yes, but you did it last year, 12 months ago. Jim, I bet unless it's your anniversary or birthday, I bet you don't remember where you went to dinner 12 months ago today. Right. Marketers are the same way. Consumers are the same way. There is nothing to be ashamed of in repeating the same message, but you have to keep your ears and your eyes open to recognize consumer shifts, constantly listening in order to lead, but not this fear of, I've got to change tomorrow because I did this yesterday. How has your CMO job changed the most in these 10 years? Um, so it's gotten easier and it's gotten harder. Um, I would say it's gotten easier because I, I feel blessed to, to believe truly that I've earned the trust trust of the community, trust of the consumer, trust of my colleagues, and trust of my team. 
it's gotten harder because once you've earned the trust, you've got to work for me, at least the way I'm wired is to work twice as hard to keep it, to sustain it. You know, there's nothing worse than trusting somebody and having that trust taken advantage of. And, you know, I take it very seriously. The, the notion of these folks trust me with their money. I mean, our franchisees pay for all of our marketing. The team is looking to me as a leader to listen at the same time to inspire, at the same time to, to when necessary, stand in front of them or stand behind them. So I feel like I've earned the trust, which puts a tremendous amount of pressure on me to continue to perform. I think in the ecosystem that we're in today, we're fighting this battle of consumer privacy that I think is unprecedented in the, in the world of marketing. How do you, when you don't have the benefit of some of these automated tools, really figure out how to put your brand on the brain of a consumer? And interesting enough, some of those old tools are new again. I'll give you a good example, direct mail. You know, we all moved away from direct mail because we were tired of getting a bunch of junk mail in our mailbox. Well, look what happened to email. So now we're starting to bring back direct mail and we're doing it in an innovative way. We're doing it with a sustainability notion because we want to be careful on how much we put into the environment. But starting to rethink tools that we at one point said, no, not going to do it. Thinking about ways that it could help us accelerate the challenge of, again, creating that action that we want them to take when we want them to take it. You spoke about a couple of your leadership principles, and you are a leader who is very clear about your convictions. You talked about hiring for passion and a sense of purpose, celebrating progress, not perfection, building trust, which you just expanded on inside and outside the company, focus on the hustle. So I've heard you in other venues, and you're very consistent. You just talked about consistency and its importance in our brand. You're very consistent on who you are as a leader. I'd like you to talk a little bit about which of those principles for you right now is on hyperdrive and why? It's, it's a great question. Um, I, I think it's, it's celebrating progress. And, and here's the reason. We are in, an, in a very difficult time as a society, not just economically, but culturally. Every person on your team and every consumer that you interact with has this movie playing in their head, a movie that is filled with points of love and hate and drama and passion that you couldn't possibly script five years ago, three years ago. If you don't celebrate those small wins, it is very easy for somebody to really take the drama, the negativity that's going on in their life and magnify it and, re- and recognize that maybe they're not happy or believe that there's a greater degree of happiness in a different brand, a, a different product, service, different choice. So for me, I, I think really trying to celebrate progress at the same time, not blowing smoke. You know, real-time feedback is important. And the commitment that I have to training and teaching is real. I want to tell you if you did a great job, but I also want you to know when you didn't. But, I, but the way that you do it with the proximity and real-timeness doesn't make it a huge issue. I had a meeting today um, and somebody who a couple of months ago wasn't a great presenter. And I went up to her and I said, you know, you crushed it today. And I could see her eyes open up and her, her, her demeanor change. Because I think she was nervous that 
you know, what did I think about the meeting? And I'm like, you crushed it. I'm like, I can't tell you how proud I am of the development. We still have some work to do on this particular topic. Don't get me wrong, but you brought it to life in a way that I haven't seen and you should feel great. And you know what? Maybe I made her day. And as a leader, maybe next time I need something. And if this person has three or four people that she's got to call back, maybe just maybe I'm the first person that she calls. I've heard you say your leadership superpower is bullshit detector. Yes. So I'd like, I'd like you to <laughs> explain exactly what that means. You, you did way too much research, Jim. I know. I always nervous. do. I always, it's, my, um, it's my superpower. So I'd like you to explain what that means and then also how you help others develop that. Yeah. So I, I definitely have a, a finely tuned bullshit detector. Um, I'm, I'm very big on the story and the narrative. Um, storytelling is incredibly important. Perhaps if, if I wasn't doing this, I would be an actor because I love telling stories. Um, I love being on stage in front of people and watching the ability to connect with somebody intellectually, but importantly, emotionally. For me, I, I have an innate ability, and I think it comes from my experience in the agency world, of when a PowerPoint slide or a presentation has no purpose. You know, there's got to be a clear what, so what, now what? The what is the data? The so what is, so what does the data mean? But most importantly, let's spend the bulk of our time on, on the, the, the now what. What are we going to do about it? If I have to spend more time talking to you about the data integrity, then my, my bullshit meter goes off. If you presenting me data, but you have absolutely no idea what it means, my radar goes off. And then if one plus one equals 17, I'm notorious for catching mathematical errors. And that's not because I'm a great mathematician, but I look for, I look at charts for trend. I look for the thing that's going to help unlock the other thing. And so what I've tried to, to instill in my team is to require of themselves and others that they work with both inside and outside to think about the story that you're telling. Once you can understand the story, then you can make a decision on whether you like the story, want to change the story, um, or don't like the story. When the story is unclear, that's when it is a colossal waste of time. And you coach this skill, if you will, by role modeling it, by debriefing after meetings, by direct feedback. Role modeling it, um, direct feedback, a lot of deck prep. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a big fan of the rehearsal, not necessarily, you know, standing in front of the mirror and presenting to yourself, but what, what you know, great, this is on the PowerPoint slide. What do you want to tell me? Talk to me. Just forget what's on the slide. Talk to me. When you talk to me as a human being and you tell me the story, the story becomes clear. If you have to use the, the, the PowerPoint to tell the story mm -hmm. too much, then you don't have story. I don't want the data. I want the insight and I want the action plan. I can pull the data myself or pay a lot of different people to, pull, to, to create data. Data doesn't make decisions. Kind of mm -hmm. comes full circle, right? We make decisions using data, but I want to understand the story. Doug, let's move to the creative brief. And the first question is the best part and the worst part of working for a French-Italian conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> and I know your company reasonably well. I worked with some of the leaders at your company years ago, and it's only gotten bigger and more interesting since I've been there. So yeah. the best and worst part. So obviously the, the, the power of, of this skyscraper of an organization. Um, I don't have a problem getting my phone call answered. And I certainly don't suffer from a lack of interest in partnering. That, that's probably the best thing. 
which is if I want access to an organization or if I have a question, um, I can pick up the phone or send an email. The challenge is in a portfolio company trying to maintain distinction, Mm -hmm. differentiation. You know, in, 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 in the world of P&G, innovation starts with A, goes to B, goes to C, goes to D. Here, you've got to be very careful to stay true to your brand. There's a lot of opportunities to go left, go right, go sideways. Being a, a, a relentless champion of consistency is, is challenging. Um, and that doesn't mean being closed off to innovation, but it's about putting innovation through the most important filter. The first two letters of of the word innovation are in. In stands for insight. And helping the organization really ground what we should be doing from an innovation perspective based on insight, not just based on an idea. That is challenging, I think, for anybody who works for a portfolio company, whether it's L'Oreal, Lauder, PVH, or Eslo Exotica. So what's your favorite pair of sunglasses or frames? Um, I have this killer pair of... um, of Ray-Bans that uh, are Transitions 8, which are their clear frames. The lens goes from clear to this bright, vibrant blue. The cool part, and I'm not wearing them today, but because of the blue light filter and the transitions, when I wear them on Zoom calls, it makes it look like I'm wearing sunglasses inside, which plays just into the whole CMO narrative, yeah, right? right. It's you your know, story. Too cool, too, too cool for school. Yeah. Um, I also have had the opportunity to go to our factories in Agado and watch them make a pair of Persoles and then went to a Persole location in the U.S. and buy them. So I was able to kind of see, you know, how a bill becomes a law. I was able to see how these glasses were built from the acetate mold to the mold to the embellishment on the temples to being sold to then purchased by me. Yeah, it's an amazing brand. I've, yeah, seen, I've seen the made too. It's incredible, the craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the most meaningful campaign or initiative for you that you that you have worked on in your 30 year career in advertising and marketing? Um, I, I think it's, it, it's either what I'm doing right now with the small moments campaign at Pearl or it's it's the notion of what we did with with Mark at Avon, you know, meet Mark at Avon. Um, why? Because both, I think, were truly think different approaches. You know, in, in the case of Avon, we were not only marketing great state-of-the-art product, but we were creating a, a um, you know, mark to makeup you can buy and sell and in creating a new business opportunity for young college-age women. Um, at Pearl, it was this, this bucking the trend of commoditization and discounts and focusing on, you know, genuine eye care, focusing on caring about the person behind the eyes, focusing on those small moments to, of care and connection. Both of them have allowed the brands to stand out. Both of them have been able to generate strong results. But most importantly, I think both of them have really helped to earn trust with who they were intended to earn trust from. First brand that you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Um, Huffy. Um, um, I wanted a Huffy dirt bike more than anything in the world. And I remember um, having an argument with my mom and dad who didn't want me to get a dirt bike because they were afraid I was going to fall off and break my arm. And I remember going to the bike store with my mom and dad for must have been like my ninth or my 10th birthday. And, you know, my mom kind of pulls me over to the 10 speed bike area. And my dad kind of gives me a wink and kind of gives me one of these. And he looks over and he's like, is that the one you want? And he's like, I'm like, yeah. He's like, all right, I got you. And uh, it showed up for my 10th birthday. Do you still ride? 
do I still ride? Well, yeah. I went from bikes to motorcycles to giving that all up. And now I think my greatest midlife crisis is probably my convertible, which is the closest thing to a motorcycle I'll probably I'll ever get, you know, until my kids go to college. That's great. Hey, um, you're a great CMO. You've had a great tenure, great results, great experience. What are some of the rituals or habits that you have to keep you at the top of your game? Um, so for me, it's putting in the right amount of process. So I, I ask all of my direct reports to write me an email. I call it the Friday by five. And I have five questions that I ask them to answer. It's the same five questions every week. And they need to send it to me theoretically by five o'clock, but it's really end of business day on Friday. And I get it from every one of my direct reports and I put it away. And Sunday night, as I'm kind of sitting on the couch, watching whatever mindless TV show I'm watching, I pull them out. And that helps me prepare for our Monday morning status meeting, because I understand what every key member of the team prioritization wise has. And we do a whip around meeting on Monday mornings where I ask everybody to spend five minutes just talking about their projects. And what I have the benefit of are these Friday by fives that I could say, Hey, Jen, I noticed that you're working on this project. Tony, this would be a great project for you to work on. Or Mike has a project that needs some help with from Jenny. So I have a, a good sense of what the team is doing, not in a micromanagement way, but from a prioritization way. And I start the week off with a, with a quick, it's a, it's a half hour meeting and it's very quick. It's just, it, it gets the team together. Usually we talk about something stupid that happened over the weekend or a funny story, but it's just a chance for the family to get together. This is something I had, had, had in place from day one here during the pandemic, they became incredibly important. Um, the second thing I do is, is religiously look outside for inspiration, meaning I try to attend conferences. I try to listen to podcasts. I, I try to read because I want to be inspired by people that are doing it better and differently than myself. And I get inspired by other leaders doing other things, both really, really good and also really, really bad. You know, just like earlier, you can be inspired to be a better leader from working for somebody that is not a good leader. You can be inspired to do great things on a brand from somebody who failed epically. We're recording this podcast right around Thanksgiving. Yep. So I want to end this with what are you, what are you most grateful for right now, Doug? Um, I'm, I'm most grateful to, to be employed, um, to love what I do. And I think most importantly, to love who I have the opportunity to do it with. I'm obviously grateful for my family, for my close group of friends, perhaps for my sanity. But honestly, I, I'm grateful for, for what, life and career has been able to provide for me that I can then provide for my family. That's a beautiful way to end this, Doug. I want to thank you. This has been a marketing class par excellence. And I, I can understand why you're a teacher. So thank you for this. It's a very, very inspiring and uh, helpful episode. So I thank you for that. And I wish you and your team and your family a wonderful holiday season. That was my conversation with Doug Zark and three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, it's a basic one, but so powerful. Spend time with the people closest to your customer or your patients. Doug is great at that. He values the people closest to the patients and he listens to them. He listens to their ideas. Second takeaway, ensure your brand purpose or your brand positioning, whatever you call it, your North Star for the brand is understood and is inspiring and guides behavior for everyone in the organization, not just the marketing or communications department. Third takeaway, 
The importance of clear rituals as a leader. Doug is really transparent about his convictions, and he has a couple habits that help him be a really, really effective leader. One is he gives real-time feedback. Another one is he sends his team five questions every Friday that kind of structures their team meeting on Monday morning. And last, this is a bonus takeaway, Doug is really big on external inspiration. He seeks companies and people who he feels he can learn from because they're doing some things better than he and his team. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.